This is Our American Stories, and we love to bring you the stories of our men and women in uniform. And now Jesse brings us the story of a nonprofit organization that puts guitars into the hands of war veterans. Thousands of war veterans are afflicted with PTSD. More soldiers have committed suicide since the Vietnam War than have died in actual battle. 22 veterans commit suicide every day, but a lot of them are finding some hope by playing the guitar. It's pretty simple. It's a program called Guitars for Vets, and it helps provide the guitars and free lessons. Check this out. Alpha Delta Echo. And E for Echo. We're a, a, a nonprofit. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. We were started 10 years ago, and we give guitar lessons to veterans. And we have found over the course of the 10 years that if you have problems, if, you, if you're having issues coping, or if, if life just becomes stressful, playing the guitar helps. Teachers donate their time, and uh, companies donate the uh, guitars and you know tuners and whatever, what have you, and. Uh, it's good therapy, if nothing else. It's good therapy for uh, post-traumatic stress, for therapy for anything that ails you. I don't know how many of you are musicians or how many of you play, but those that do will understand what I'm talking about when I say you can pick up a guitar and start playing, and the next thing you know, two hours is gone. And it's like, where did that go? Well, you're at peace for those two hours. You're having a good time, your mind quiets down, and things just become okay. And this is how it helps veterans with PTSD. It helps quiet them down and it helps them feel good about themselves and have a positive experience. Started coming to the VA. I come here for about 10 years and then I found out about the recreation program and that they offer guitar lessons. So I took them, I took the 10, 10 lessons. I think it was one of the best things I did. It's very good for me. The guitar helps you even if all you're doing is plucking the strings. It helps bring out whatever it is emotionally that you're trying to relax out of you. For me, I enjoy the company myself. It's a very good group of guys. I mean, I mean, these guys, these guys know what they're doing. Some of our better instructors have been minimalist guitar players. They may be the first position chords or whatever, but they're so good teaching people, and they they you, you, they can guide people through it, and they can make them feel like it's a success. The program is supposed to be a positive learning experience for everybody, so you don't want to make anybody feel like they failed or they're not keeping up with the program. It's just it's supposed to be enjoyable. It's supposed to be fun. And the, that's really what you need from an instructor is the ability to communicate that and be patient and empathetic with what the veterans are going through. It's a difficult thing for to find an instructor who has the flexibility to teach somebody who have who doesn't have any vision and figure out a way to show me how to play a guitar and I will say it was a uh, it was a good experience for both of us it made him a better teacher and it also made me a better student he was trying to teach me how to finger pick so I enjoyed it I could listen to him all day just finger pick on their music, so it's good. Are you a pretty good finger picker now? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not an easy thing to do. And 
but I still try. When I'm home, I try. It seems to me that the, the, the instrument tells you what type of music you're going to play. So I ended up, when I was taking piano lessons and playing piano, I would play love songs. I thought it would be the same that my guitar, I would learn how to play love songs on the guitar. But that's not true. The guitar said, you're going to play the blues. So I ended up playing the blues with the guitar. It just helps you calm down and de-stress. And it is, it's the best de-stressor I know of. And believe me, I, I, I use it at home all the time. But I would say you've got nothing to lose by doing it. It's, it's just, it's, it's a great program. And, and we know it helps. We know it can help you. So, you know. All non-judgmental. Come in and enjoy. Now, Guitars for Vets has fulfilled over 25,000 lessons and distributed over 2,500 guitars for free to military veterans. If you want to help out by donating $200, you can send one veteran through the program. That's guitarsforvets.org, and this is Our American Stories. And again, that's guitarsforvets.org. And by the way, this could just be something that you should think about for yourself or your family. Uh, an instrument, playing it, what it can do for you. That's why we spend so much time on music here on this show, and we spend a lot of time on vets. Jesse's really good at bringing disparate things that we care about together. I know another program that's uh, dealing with equestrians for vets up in Memphis. My little girl does that, and teaches vets how to ride, gets them at peace. And that's what we're all looking for in the end, is that inner peace. It's half of why we do this show here in Our American Stories. No screaming, no yelling. We've heard from so many of you uh, the thanks that you get for our tone, for the way we carry ourselves. Uh, And in this day and age, it's just hard to come across things that put you at peace. And so thanks again, Jesse, for finding this. Pick up a guitar one day. Go get an old used piano. Just start playing it. Just start strumming it. Just start tickling the keyboards. I like to do nothing better at my home. This is Our American Stories, Guitar for Vets. And by the way, this shows what so many people here do with their free time in this country. And as they give of their time, it's not always their money they can give, but my goodness, we can give of our time. Guitarsforvets.org, their story, these soldiers' stories who've been helped and healed by this ministry. And it is a ministry here on Our American Stories.
Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And from 1993 to 1997, Mike Judge captured the spirit of American adolescence, epitomized by two cheap and crummy animated cartoons. Here's Greg Hengler with a story of the highly popular television show, Beavis and Butthead. (laughs) The stupid and ugly have one advantage in life. Teachers expect nothing from them. So they can fly under the usual indoctrination that accompanies education. Uh, What's this crap? Thus, the stupid and ugly, if they aren't entirely stupid have a greater chance of being original. They're allowed to speak the truth because no one cares what they say. Because they are stupid, they are free. Beavis and Butthead, two supremely stupid and excruciatingly ugly pubescent males who live somewhere in the Southwest, were the biggest phenomenon on MTV since the heyday of Michael Jackson. Their laugh, low and breathy variations of... superseded Wayne and Garth's Not as the comic catchphrase. An album and a blockbuster movie were made, and their merchandising campaign swept across American malls. Mike Judge is the creator of the television series Beavis and Butthead and co-creator of the television series King of the Hill. He also wrote and directed Office Space, the now cult film about IT workers that premiered in 1999. Here's Mike Judge. I'd been interested in animation since I was a kid. I took a cartoon class at the YMCA. At the time, I didn't know what the signs of a junkie were, but now looking back, I'm pretty sure that my cartoon teacher was a junkie. Here's writer David Felton. I think the name Butthead came from some friend of his they called Iron Butt, who just liked to have people kick him as hard as they could in his butt. Beavis and Butthead I had drawn in a sketchbook, and I kind of had them lying around, and there was this Sick and Twisted festival that Spike and Mike were doing. And I thought, I don't know if I'm going to have a career, but I may never have a chance like this again to just do whatever I want, get as out there as I want. Sometime after I'd done the first two shorts, I thought, okay, what should, I should animate something with these guys. And I just went for a walk and came up with the whole idea for the short and the names and everything, I don't know, in probably like two or three minutes. <laughs> I I'd remembered a kid saying something about frog baseball, which is kind of a sick game, you know. I guess I was thinking about these just out-of-control 14-year-olds that I've known growing up. <laughs> that would be cool. Beavis and Butthead was tested in front of a focus group in 1992. Here's executive producer Abby Turkley. We wanted to to develop it as a series. We tested it. It tested through the roof. I didn't even know what a focus group was. I remember Abby Turkuli calling me and saying, um, you know, we showed it to a focus group up in Chicago, and I've never seen a reaction like this. Best reaction I've ever seen. It was just funny to see, because I'm hearing my voice going, you know, and then seeing these kids going, This said to be continued, the other Would you like to see more? Yeah. In fact, one kid stayed after and said, can I buy can I buy this out of the tape machine? Okay. Could you like record the tape for us? You, you want a copy of the tape? Okay. Here's Judy McGrath, former president of MTV Networks, turned member of Amazon's board of directors. And I thought, okay, I've been watching focus groups for, you know, ten years. I've never heard anyone say, Can I buy the tape? 
and so it was frog baseball. We tested it with women as well in separate groups, uh, and I think the women were cooler at first. Hated it. Absolutely hated it. Horrible. It was irritating, irritating to look at. I just thought it was awful. I mean, it's irritating. You just weren't reaching us, dude. I remember Mike's face when I uh, came up to him and I said, guess what, we got the money to do 65 episodes. Well, he turned white as a ghost and said, I can't do 65 episodes. Uh, what? And I said, don't worry, we'll get help. Have you Heimlich the victim? <laughs> no way. <laughs> Boy, the, uh, the first season, uh, they were supposed to have 22 episodes on March 8th, and they had two. So we went on the air with two episodes. It was a show that was every day. And they were horrible. I mean, the first two episodes were awful. I don't know why anybody liked it. We cobbled together an episode out of two of my shorts and a bunch of videos. It's not just about writing. It's about writing stupid, which I felt, felt was a hard thing to do, really. It's like you have to go back to the place where thinking begins and stay there. Do you think that's funny, butthead? I hadn't even thought about ratings going into this thing. Remember after the, the first episode aired, and I thought it was awful, and I was like, I'm gonna go bury my head in the sand, and uh, Abby called and said, we got a one last night. <laughs> I thought, What's a one mean? Uh, you know, and they said, well, usually, you know, that time slot is like a 0 .6, 0 .7. We got a one, and so. Oh. Good. Then the next night it was 1.2. The next night it's the same episode airing over and over again. And by Friday it was like 1.8. The first week it went on the air, probably the third night, we got phone calls from five or six movie studios saying, you know, let's go right into production and make a movie. We heard from everybody. Retailers wanted to sell the clothes. Winger was going to reunite and go on the road. Warner Brothers wanted to make a live-action Wayne's World type movie. You know, right away it was, uh, can you give me a Beavis and Butthead? So we l literally put the brakes on everything for a while. At first I was thinking of just, there are these two guys who uh, are just around each other all the time. They don't have a lot of other friends or any other friends. And so there's just these inside jokes that just keep on going to the point where they're just kind of laughing all the time. Okay, Armstrong. Here. Armijo. Present. Baca. Yo. Butt kiss. Here. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with you two? We've been in school over seven months now, and every single day when I call Daniel Buttkiss's name, you guys have to laugh. <laughs> Is it really still that funny? <laughs> Doesn't it ever get old? Are you going to laugh for the rest of your lives every time someone says the name Buttkiss? <laughs> <laughs> that does it. Principal's office now. Here's head writer-producer for Beavis and Butthead, Christopher Brown. They were clearly self-destructive. You've had destructive impulses, right? Uh, no. <sighs> but no matter how miserable their existence were, let's face it, they weren't living a great life. They didn't have a, a nice home. They didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> money. 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 <laughs> Girls didn't respond to them. Hey, baby. <sighs> Other kids made fun of them and beat them up like Todd. But... They always managed to enjoy themselves. I mean, their laughter came through everything. Even when Todd kicks their and they're going, you know, oh, this sucks. You s they follow it up with a laugh. Todd's cool. Yeah. 
thinking life. <laughs> they are trying to figure things out, and they, they sort of, in their own way, philosophize about things, and which is what's really great to write like that. I bet they put all the stuff that sucks on in the morning just to, like, get us to go to school. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's working. Usually I would start with the voice and then do the drawing. This one I started with a drawing, and I didn't know what they would sound like. And um, i just drawn ha, ha, ha on there. Um, I started doing that laugh, and I was kind of like going, like, this is reminding me of something. Didn't think about it till probably two years into the show that it was, there was a guy at my high school. He was uh, really smart, stoned all the time, but he would just, you'd see him in the hallway, and I would always see him when the hallway was empty, and he'd just start, like, he's one of these guys that he'd start going, huh, huh. Hey, Mike. <laughs> and so when I was do, when I would do the voice, I would just kind of do the, <laughs> and I would get I would be doing it sort of to get into character to get the voice sounding right, and then I'd go, well, that kind of sounds funny that he's just laughing all the time anyway. <laughs> 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 the Beavis laugh. There was a guy who was uh, was actually in calculus class, and he was a really smart guy. He's uh, now a nuclear engineer. I hope he doesn't figure out who he is <laughs> that I'm talking about him. But he, uh, we had a hot teacher, which was unheard of back then. She was a former Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. Uh, anyway, he would get really excited, and he just like he was biting his lip all the time and just kind of going like, <coughs> <coughs> like laughing at everything she said. So I started out with that laugh, and then I just kind of made his voice sound like the laugh, just like raspy, you know. <laughs> That's right, everyone. If we all work together and respect one another's space, we'll get through this crisis with a newfound sense of community. Get out of the street, you long-haired panty waist! Mr. Van Driesen, that was probably that was probably my favorite character other than Beavis to, to do the voice for. When I started doing that voice, I wasn't quite sure where I was getting it from. And then I remembered, I used to be a musician, and uh, I played with Sam Myers. And there's this guy from the Santa Barbara Blues Society there, and he was interviewing Sam. He just had this way of talking. He said, um, I remember him saying something like, Sam, it must have been really wonderful for you, having grown up in the Deep South, to be able to travel to Europe and experience some of their culture and share some of your culture as well. And when we come back, more of the story of Beavis and Butthead. This is Our American Stories, and we're covering the story of Beavis and Butthead, and I just love that line, you have to go back to the place where thinking begins and stay there. And that was the mindset Mike Judge and his team had to put themselves in. Let's go back to the rest of this story and return to Greg Hengler. Let's continue with Beavis and Butthead creator Mike Judge and the show's cast of characters. They say great art is difficult to understand, but easy to enjoy. <laughs> Very good, Butthead. That's right. I wanted to have this, this hippie teacher who just believes that teaching can solve any problem. The, 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 only, the problem with teenagers, it's all education. So it's always funny for me to see Mr. Van Driesen just try so hard and 
believe that they can be changed and that not only do they not learn from his lessons, they usually learn the wrong lesson from what he's saying. Why don't we each tell what impressions we took away from the museum? <clears throat> hey, buddy, what did you take away? <laughs> boy, oh boy, what I wouldn't give for five minutes alone with those little bastards that took my mower. Mr. Anderson, there's probably been five or six people in my life that talked like that. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, actually, and it always seemed like every middle-aged authority figure had a Texas accent. I had a paper route when I was a kid. My brother and I had one. You'd go collect at the end of the month, door to door back then. We went up to the door, and uh, the guy looked at us, you know, and, he, and so it was our first month collecting. He says, well, you ain't my paper boy. My brother said, yeah, well, I know. Your paper boy quit, and we're the new paper boys. And he, well, I know what my paper boy looks like, and you ain't my paper boy. Finally, my brother said, okay, well, if you don't pay, you know, we're going to have to cancel your cancel the paper. And he said, oh, I'm going to get the paper when the real paper boy comes. And finally he swallowed his pride and he phoned in a subscription. And <laughs> Boy, I tell you what, Dusty, I felt like a one-legged cat trying to bury turds on a frozen pond out there today. Whoa, it's Todd. I know, I know. Actually, I think Sam and Chris first suggested the idea of a, of a guy who uh, beats the crap out of him, but they think he's really cool. To me, Todd reminds me of this. Uh, we had a family down at the end of, the, of our block when I was a kid, and the dad was a truck driver, and a couple of the kids had gone to jail, and they, they were teenagers while we were 10 and 11, and the middle one would just terrorize us. He'd come by on his motorcycle, ride on our lawn, patch the lawn, just scare the shit out of us whenever he could. I would like nothing more than to kill you both with my bare hands. There was a, a band director in ninth grade. I'm pretty sure he was an alcoholic. And he would just, he smelled like liquor in the morning. And he, he was just always, there was just, he was kind of shaking, always angry, always wound up. There was just this noise coming out of him. He was, oh, 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 what are you doing? Watch your m mouth, you little sons of... Ah, Here's what? head writer-producer for Beavis and Butthead, Christopher Brown. This is starting to suck. <laughs> Do I get into heaven or not? There were Senate hearings in the fall of 93 where uh, Senator Hollings cited us as, uh, as an evil, basically. Was it Buffcoat and Beaver or Beaver and something else? Uh, so clearly he was well-informed. <laughs> Well, I can see you boys aren't like the usual hooligans hanging around here. Like these two fellas, uh, Buff, Code, and Beaver. Boy, they've been nothing but trouble. Trey and Matt, the South Park guys, I remember them saying that Beavis and Butthead to them was like the blues, which was a really high compliment to me because it's, it's that kind of thing where it's just, it's the same thing over and over again, but it's good. Here's South Park co-creator Trey Parker. I remember uh, right before at South Park went on the air, actually, Mike took us out to give us advice because he's just that cool of a guy. And uh, he, uh, he was sitting there going, well, you know, don't, uh, don't let people take advantage of you because <laughs> they're dumb. What's your problem, Beavis? I said stop. Here's rapper Snoop Dogg. First time I seen Beavis and Butthead would probably be, you know, one night I was falling up out of the studio and I came home and uh, just put the TV on MTV. And I peeped it out, and I was tripping because they was acting a fool. Shut up! You know what I'm saying? I just was tripping off how the two little dudes was acting. At least we have, like, lots of friends. Uh, not really. Are we healthy? 
Here's writer Larry Doyle. Mike could make almost anything sound funny. That's a very hard quality to do. I thought that Mike could make even the lamest line sound funny. He could say, butthead say, make it snappy. And there's just something about the way he said it. And, it, you know, it helped a little bit that butthead is a little bit of a lisp. You men want a date. Uh, yeah, we want two of them. And make it snappy. Yeah. <laughs> Get the kite, Beavis. Cool. <laughs> when I was doing the this profile for Rolling Stone, I remember that uh, Patrick Stewart, Jean-Luc Picard, was a giant fan of the of the show, and he he happily talked to me not only for the article, but I'd say for about a half an hour afterwards about what episodes I had written and what his favorite episodes were. Oh no. We cannot allow ourselves to think that. Here again is Trey Parker. The point of the show, you know, was the great satirical look at sort of where a lot of teenagers in America were at the time. And and it really was, I think, a very scathing, very harsh uh, and and almost a, a very open your eyes people and, and you know, now I know Mike en enough to know that there was a lot more behind it, you know, and, and Mike is a, a very good guy and a very cool guy, and he actually, you know, was was trying to say something, you know, that, that this this is starting to be our youth, and if we're not careful, this is going to be our youth. <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to feel it. <laughs> you know, Beavis, it doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> Something that's good, it doesn't matter how great, it doesn't matter how slick it is. You don't need Disney, you don't need these sweet graphics. If something's funny and something's good, you can have it look that crappy. And, and it inspired us in that way, just to go, let's just do it ourselves. We'll do it with construction paper if we have to. It, it really got us into this conversation about satire and how there was no good satire out there. And, and we wanted to do the same thing Mike did. I always reference TV I grew up on because that's the, that's still, I guess it's whatever age you are, you're gonna, you know, the thing that really cements itself in your head is the first stuff you liked on television. And I, I loved the Beverly Hillbillies, Leave it to Beaver, Andy Griffith show. There's actually a line you could draw between Beavis and Butthead and Andy Griffith in terms of the style of the way the comedy worked. Mm -hmm. Even though the topics were very different, the, the character comedy was very much the same. Well, hey there, Master Cleaver. Aren't you supposed to be in school? Well... I guess so, B but all I know is I'm supposed to come in here and buy some cigarettes. Hey, you wouldn't be buying these for Eddie now, would you? Gee, how'd you know? You know, if you look at it from a comedy math point of view, it's really very old-fashioned kind of humor, even though at the time it was upsetting people with the topics that it was... I mean, it was, they were just dumb guys. And that's a real, there's a real long tradition of... Dumb guy comedies. <laughs> you guys aren't drunk. You're just stupid. Here's former president of Viacom, Van Toffler. I think it's really about um, being true to what, you know, teen boys do and the prism through which they see life, and particularly innocent, one, innocent ones like those two. I mean, they are really based, and whatever they feel comes out of their mouths. And um, I sort of was that when I was a teenager, I'd sad to say, but everyone knows Beavis and Butthead. You could relate to it, animated or real. They were part of your life at some point. To me, Beavis and Butthead, when it's good, has that thing, it's a ridiculous premise. Three Stooges, it's the same thing over and over again, but I can keep watching it, Cheech and Chong, I don't, you know, you just kinda wanna 
be there with those guys, and, and I kind of hoped that Beavis and Butthead would be in that category. I'm just glad it's finally over. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, really. At least now we can get on with our lives. <laughs> And great job, as always, by Greg Hengler. The story of Beavis and Butthead. It's Mike Judge's story, too. And, of course, he gave us South Park. And, my goodness, what a contribution to American culture. Both of these silly, stupid, the Three Stooges, of course, being the driving force behind all of this. And stuff like it. Teenage adolescents, boys. Mike Judge, Beavis and Butthead, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, the most epic road trip ever. And our own Alex Cortez brings us our 33rd feature, and you can hear all of them at OurAmericanNetwork.org. The Corps of Discovery is at the base of the Rocky Mountains and needs to somehow convince the Shoshone Indians to give them horses to get over those mountains. They sit down in this giant council tent. They decide to have this ceremonial moment where Lewis is going to ask for cooperation and horses. We're listening to our resident Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson. So they get in, and Lewis says it seats around 80. And so you have this picture of this huge group of people. And Sacagawea is now there, so finally she gets her moment and she's there to interpret. And after what Lewis finds is sort of an annoyingly long pipe ceremony led by Camille, somebody nods to Lewis and he begins to make his pitch. And Sacagawea is now going to translate Lewis's English via Labiche and Charbonneau. So Lewis in English, Labiche in French, Charbonneau in Hidatsa, uh, Sacagawea in Shoshone. So through that language change. Lewis is going to say, we come in peace, Uh, we're heading towards the Great Stinking Lake. Otherwise known to us as the Pacific Ocean. (laughs) But those Indians always have more fun names for everything. We have a huge number of things we have to carry. We need horses. If you cooperate, we'll be back and traders will come and make your life so much better and you won't be harassed any longer by the hostile nomadic tribes from the north and so on. He's going to say all of this, but chiefly, we need horses and we're prepared to trade for them. And when Sacagawea then looks over at the leader of the Shoshone to translate Lewis's words and his intentions, she recognizes him. And she starts to cry. She, she bursts into tears and she jumps up and goes over to Kamiyawait and makes herself known to him and, and hugs him. And Lewis says, then they put a blanket over their heads for privacy, and there was this, no one was quite sure what's going on here. And then she tried to kind of gather herself back up to take care of her professional responsibility, and she burst into tears again. And then it dawned on people that Camille Wade was her brother. 
Now, brother may not mean brother in the sense of Anglo-American society, of biological brother. It could have meant cousin, uncle, or distant relative, or even just person of the same age from the same small clan. Or it could have meant brother in the fullest sense of the term, but whatever is the case, the Kaguya had been captured at around the age of 11 and taken by Hidatsa all the way across what's now Montana into the Missouri country in North Dakota where she had been absorbed somehow into the Hidatsa world and eventually married to Charbonneau. The Shoshone never expected to see her again. Uh, now she's back a distance of 800 miles from North Dakota and she's in this council tent and she's interpreting with this tribe, her tribe, but she would not have expected them necessarily to be of her clan. And the leader turns out to be her brother, Kamiawait. I mean, this is, this is a moment that's so, so weird that you couldn't, you would not believe this if it were part of a fiction of the American West, but it happens to be the truth of this story. And it meant that things were going to get much better in the expedition's relationship with the Shoshone. Of the 52 tribes that Lewis and Clark met in the course of the journey, this was certainly the most important of all of their encounters, and it's the most romantic. It's just a world-class story, and it deserves way more attention than it has received. There are only a few choke points in the course of the expedition, and this was the principal one. If they had not met the Shoshone, if they had refused to sell or trade horses, uh, it's not clear what would have happened, but there is no way that, that the party of 33 could have carried enough on their backs without horses to cross the mountains. And so either they would have had to have a stripped-down expedition of a handful of people who would push through, or they would have had to turn back even though Meriwether Lewis just had this remarkable day, he remarkably broke down the next day, his birthday. So that's one of the really interesting moments in the expedition. It's been a source of extraordinary speculation by historians and biographers and scholars. So Lewis says, today I have completed my 31st year and I have an all uh, probability now existed about half the time I am to live in this sublunary world. Uh, I viewed with regret the many hours I have spent in indolence and now sorely feel the want of that information which those hours would have given me had they been judiciously employed. But since they are past and cannot be recalled, I dashed from me the gloomy thought and resolved in future to redouble my efforts to promote those two primary objects of human existence, to promote the happiness of the succeeding age and, and add to the information of those who follow, or in short, hereafter to live for mankind, as I have heretofore lived for myself. So he gives this really remarkable birthday meditation, and you have to wonder, why is he being so hard on himself? He's been successful up till this moment, remarkably successful. This should be a time of either serene confidence or open pride. But instead, on his 31st birthday, he says, I, I don't bring enough to the table. I did I, when I should have been studying, lining my mind with thoughts about botany and mineralogy and meteorology and ethnography and 
cartography, I, I, I wasted my time, and, and now there's no way for me to uh, to get better prepared because I'm out here with no no libraries, no resources of any sort. I, I, whatever I've got in my brain pan is what I've got, and it's an entirely inadequate. If I had used my time well in the past, um, I'd be so much better able to command this expedition. So that's the first part of it, this lament that he's not a true figure of the Enlightenment. He doesn't, doesn't, he's not what Jefferson would have hoped, a man kind of gifted in all of the Enlightenment sciences, and he's not even what he would have expected of himself um, to bring to, the, to this expedition. Sort of, it is what it is, and then having sort of wallowed in that really severe self-criticism for a time, then he says, "But wait, I'm going to dash from me the gloomy thought. It's not going to do any good for me to mope about this, and all I can do now is rededicate my life, so that in the future I will be able to bring more to whatever it is that I do and serve those two primary Enlightenment objects." That's that, I've got to have a kind of New Year's birthday resolution here to, to try harder, be more, bring more to the table. And so that's how it ends. And so the question is, you know, first, why so pessimistic? Well, it is true. Jefferson later said that, quote, Lewis was not regularly educated, that he, he, he was a gifted amateur, but emphasis amateur. And secondly, you know, Lewis didn't really know the things that would have helped him in the field. He was he was not a professional figure of the Enlightenment. He was an army officer and an adventurer, a rambler. But some people think I do, and a few others do, that this was not written on the 18th of August, 1805, that this is a kind of a set piece, that this is what explorers do, that explorers step back to lament, that they don't bring more resourcefulness to the moment than they have, they talk about their inadequacies. They talk about how many things it would be worth knowing that they don't yet know. And so we think, a number of scholars think that this was written later and that it's kind of, it's a pose of a certain sort, it's, that he doesn't really mean it in the full sense of the term, or that he wrote it at Fort Clatsop beginning on January 1st, 1860, he writes for oh, two and a half months of, descriptions of plants and animals and peoples and ethnographic data, botanical data, mammalogy, mineralogy, and some of the best natural history writing that Lewis ever did was done during that period. And then he really could have used greater knowledge than he had because he was stuck. He had a, a small portable library and we're not even sure that he carried it all the way to the Pacific. It could have been put in a cash pit back in Montana. And he's writing out these descriptions and, and it may be at that moment when he when he needed to have a, a reference library around him or more in his head that he just felt wow uh, I'm, I'm okay I, I can describe things but I'm not I, I don't have the scientific vocabulary and the sophistication that I would really like to have in, in producing this material when I give lectures to like commencement addresses at colleges I always quote this and say you'll feel this You'll be writing a paper here around Thanksgiving, and you'll think, oh, the many hours I spent in indolence. If I only had the information that those hours would have given me had they been judiciously employed. Well, every human being feels this. No human being feels adequate to all of the intellectual and cultural demands on life. And so, you know, Lewis 
I'm sure felt it because he knew that he was not Jefferson, that his patron was one of the great men of the Enlightenment, and he, Lewis, was um, just doing the best he could with a limited skill set in the middle of nowhere. And so he had to be self-conscious in a way that, say, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin didn't have to be because they weren't, they didn't occupy the same place in the history of ideas that Lewis does at the height of the Enlightenment with America's greatest intellectual president as his mentor. And great job, as always, by Alex, and thank you to Clay Jenkinson, the editor of the Lewis and Clark Periodical. We proceeded on, and you can learn more about Clay and his work at claijenkinson.com. The most epic road trip ever, our 33rd feature, the story of Lewis and Clark, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our special presentation on the life of the most famous magician and illusionist of all time. Jesse Edwards brings us the story of the great Harry Houdini. We begin the story of Harry Houdini, the most famous magician the world has ever known night of October 31st, 1936, on the rooftop of the Nickenbacher Hotel in Hollywood, California. Ten years to the day after Houdini died on Halloween of 1926. Tonight, we are in the very heart of glamorous Hollywood that Houdini loves so well. He lived here. He worked here. Houdini loved Hollywood. It's a Houdini night. With the spotlight of the public on Houdini. With the whole world paused to see or hear Houdini step on this side of the curtain. The great Houdini had made a pact with his wife Bess that he would make every attempt to communicate with her as a spirit from beyond the grave after he was dead. So, every year, on Halloween... The widow of Harry Houdini held a seance for him on the night of his departure for the next 10 years without ever making contact. In this, the 10th and final official seance for Harry Houdini, gold invitations were sent to some 300 guests and reporters. Lights as far away as New York were dimmed and one minute of silence was observed as the ceremony began in prayer. Now let us bow our heads in meditation and prayer. O thou master mind of the universe, please let the spirit of understanding descend upon us that are gathered here in the inner circle tonight. We are each in his own way seekers after truth, and we offer our grateful thanks to thee. Guide us, please. Amen. A table with Houdini's handcuffs was set near the edge of the roof, with the Hollywood sign as the prominent dramatic backdrop lit up in the distance of the Halloween night. Now, the final plea for the great Houdini to appear in spirit form. Oh, thou disembodied spirits, those of you that have grown old in the mysterious laws of spirit land, we greet thee. It is the spirit of Houdini we wish to contact. Houdini, are you here? Are you here, Houdini? 
please manifest yourself in any way possible. Take from this earnest gathering any strength that may be necessary for you to use. Take any vital thing from us that you may need to enable you to carry out your promise of years ago. We have waited, Houdini, oh so long. Never have you been able to present the evidence you promised. And now, this is a night of night. The world is listening. Harry, your world, your audience, we are crying to high heaven. To the powers that be, we are crying in one mighty magnetic voice from every corner of the earth and the hearts and minds of the Mutus are centered here tonight. We want the evidence, the truth, in the name of humanity and love. If there is communication from the great beyond, come through with the evidence. Yet again, like ten times before, Houdini did not come through from the other side. His wife, Bess, had no other choice but to concede. Mrs. Houdini, the zero hour has passed. The ten years are up. Have you reached a decision? Yes. Houdini did not come through. My last hope is gone. I do not believe that Houdini can come back to me or to anyone. After faithfully following through the 10-year Houdini compact, using every type, medium, and theos, it is now my personal and positive belief that spirit communication in any form is impossible. I do not believe that ghosts or spirits exist. The Houdini shrine has burned for 10 years. I now reverently turn out the light. It is finished. Good night, Harry. For ten years, Bess presided over these well-publicized seances. Though she stopped participating in 1938, not a single Halloween has passed since without an official Houdini seance held by magicians somewhere in the world as homage to the great Houdini. Which is somewhat ironic, considering that Harry Houdini was well known for his efforts to debunk spiritualist mediums and psychics. He even wrote a book about it, called A Magician Among the Spirits. He was a member of the Scientific American Committee, offering cash prizes to anyone who could demonstrate psychic abilities under the scrutiny of scientific observers. Houdini would debunk mediums by wearing elaborate disguises and infiltrating seances, Tricks of the trade could easily be exposed by one with such knowledge and illusions as Houdini possessed. But where did Houdini obtain this knowledge of illusion? And what drove him to such great lengths in his efforts to disprove psychics, mediums, and spiritualists? He was born in Budapest, Hungary, March 24, 1874, as Eric Weiss, the son of a rabbi and one of seven children. His family immigrated to the United States and settled in Wisconsin. Eric began to pursue an interest in magic, as his stage name, Eric Weiss, became Harry Houdini by adding an I to the last name of his idol, French magician Robert Houdin. Legend has it that young Houdini was apprenticed to a locksmith, where he learned to assemble and take apart locks with his eyes closed. At 17 years old, Harry Houdini left his family to pursue his career in magic. Assisted by his little brother Theodore, Houdini began appearing in New York beer halls, theaters, museums, platforms next to snake charmers, fire eaters, and human oddities. 
They traveled as far west as Chicago, where the brothers Houdini did quite well during the 1893 World's Fair. In 1894, while performing at Coney Island in Brooklyn, New York, Houdini met a performer named Bess, and they were married quickly before she joined him on stage to become the husband-wife act known as the Houdinis. For the rest of Harry's career, Bess worked as his stage assistant. Yet, Houdini began 1899 adrift and discouraged. He hadn't made much of a name for himself and was trying to make a living by doing card tricks and escaping from handcuffs. He was also dead broke. A year earlier, he had attempted to sell his entire act. But there were no takers. When we come back, the great Houdini finds success right here on Our American Stories. We continue the story of the great Harry Houdini, who at this point had found moderate success, but hadn't yet become famous. His big break came in 1899 when he met manager Martin Beck in St. Paul, Minnesota, who convinced Houdini to concentrate on his escape acts. He then toured Europe, and his show was an immediate success. His salary rose to $300 per week. With his newfound wealth, he purchased a dress said to have been made for Queen Victoria. He then arranged for a grand reception where he presented his mother in the dress to all of their relatives. Houdini said was the happiest day of his life. In 1904, he returned to the United States and bought a house for $25,000 in New York City. Harry Houdini had arrived, but his popularity was just beginning. Joshua Jay is a successful magician and respected Harry Houdini expert who joins us from the Contemporary Jewish Museum of San Francisco. All right, so let's talk a little bit about Houdini in a metaphorical sense. Who is Houdini? Houdini is five foot three. He's considered at this time period an outsider, Hungarian. He's an immigrant at a time when more immigrants were coming into the country than ever before. He's a minority, he's Jewish. So already you have a lot of things that people in that time viewed as stacked against you. He was an outsider, he wasn't thought of as American. And yet, somehow, he became America's first superstar. And he really was. That's not a, really even a debatable statement. He was America's first superstar because although there were people who were famous actors on the stage and later in silent pictures, they were famous for portraying other people, other powerful people. Houdini was famous for who he was. And who was he? He's this small Jewish immigrant, but chains can't hold him. He can escape from anything. That's an unbelievable metaphor given the time period. This isn't a time when most people are feeling repressed. Most people are feeling like there's a ceiling to how high they can rise. Here's a man without education, without any money. It's the ultimate rags to riches story. From 1907 and throughout 1910, Houdini performed with great success in the United States. He freed himself from jails, handcuffs, chains, ropes, and straitjackets often while hanging from a rope inside of a street audience or out in front of a major newspaper for the extra publicity. Because of imitators, Houdini put his handcuff act behind him in 1908 and began escaping from a locked 
water-filled milk can. Here again is Joshua J. Houdini was largely known for his escapes, but truthfully, most of his escapes were publicity stunts. They were done outside in harbors to get people to come to his magic shows. So this is why he would be seen upside down with a straitjacket or doing underwater escapes, bridge jumps. But in 1908, he had a brilliant idea to bring the major escapes to the stage. And this was the one that he brought. This is the milk can escape. It's an original Houdini illusion, and this is the original milk can. He would go inside the can, so only his head was emerged. And then he would do something brilliant. He would say to everybody in the audience, I have here the biggest stopwatch in the world, and he would bring out a big clock, and he would say, I want all of you to help me warm up my lungs by holding your breath for a minute with me. And he would get everybody in the audience to hold their breath, the timer would start, and he would go submerge himself into the can. Everybody tries to hold their breath, 30 seconds go by, and they learn it's hard. He comes up after a minute, they kick the can, and, and now it's brilliant, because what has he done? He hasn't shown you that what he's doing is impossible, like most magicians. He's shown you that what he's doing is difficult and real. And that is a way that everybody, remember, even if there were 3,000 people in the crowd, could understand and identify on a very intimate level the real danger that he was attempting. Here again is magician Joshua Jay with the details on how exactly the milk can illusion worked. So this is how the illusion would work. He would say, after a moment of meditation, I will now hold my breath much longer. And he would resubmerge. Six assistants would place the top on the can and then lock the six padlocks on the side. A small curtain was placed around it. This was to protect the secret of his illusion, which remains a secret to this day. And then the clock would start ticking. After a minute, almost everybody in the audience couldn't hold their breath. After two minutes, the skeptics were scared. At the three minute mark, the theater manager would come out with an axe in his hand, looking very confused like this had never happened before. And of course it happened every night, the same exact way. This is Houdini's brilliance with orchestrating a play and playing with your emotions. At the four minute mark, everybody in the audience was shouting, mercy, mercy for Mr. Houdini. And just as he was about to break open that can with an axe, Houdini would emerge from behind the curtain, soaking wet to thunderous applause. They ate it up, they loved it. Then they'd whisk away the curtain and the padlocks were still locked. It was as if he melted through the side. Now just because this was an illusion, it doesn't mean it wasn't truly dangerous. Joshua Jay describes one event where it cost an imitator everything. A Houdini imitator named Janesta attempted the milk can escape in 1930, four years after Houdini's death. But what Janesta didn't know is that as his crew was unloading the can, they dropped it. Now we don't know how Houdini did it, but we do know that Janesta did it with a trap door lid, a lid that even when locked, you could escape through. When they dented the can, they stopped the method of escape. The trap door wouldn't open. Janesta didn't know this until he was underwater inside the can with the padlocks locked. No way to shout for help, no way to signal what had happened. It took his wife, who was watching the trick from the wings, three minutes before she realized something had gone wrong. She ushered all the assistants in to help unlock the can. But of course, remember, the way the trick is supposed to work, they never have to unlock the padlocks. They couldn't remember which keys went to which locks. So they got mixed up and they lost another precious minute. 
By the time they unlocked the can, they opened it, Janesta lived only long enough so that they could explain to him how he had been killed. Harry Houdini had a few close calls himself over the years. Being buried alive was one of the most dangerous stunts that the magician ever pulled off. Assistants shackled and covered Houdini with earth six feet deep. Trying to dig his way out, he soon became exhausted and panicked. While calling for help, his hand finally broke the surface of the earth, and he passed out. In his personal diary, Houdini wrote that it was a very dangerous escape and that the weight of the earth is killing. Houdini's daredevil behavior wasn't just for the stage, but very much a part of who he was. In 1909, he became fascinated with aviation and purchased a 60-horsepower French biplane for $5,000. Houdini made his first flight near Hamburg, Germany, on November 26, 1909. Just six years after the first flight of the Wright brothers, some reports say that Houdini was the 25th person to ever fly an airplane. At a time when air travel was highly experimental, this was truly another death-defying act to add to his repertoire. Houdini was also officially recognized as the first person to ever make a controlled flight in Australia by the Australian Aerial League. Harry Houdini, the great magician and handcuff king, arrives at Digger's Rest, 30 miles from Melbourne, with his international brigade, his American wife, car, and chauffeur, Brassic, his French mechanic, and French Wazen biplane, purchased through a German aviator in Germany to make history in Australia. His diary records, On my first trial flight, just after getting off the ground, I quickly flopped back to Earth. I smashed machine and broke propeller all to... It is interesting to note that this box kite-type airplane evolved from the box kite gliders built and flown by Hargrave of Sydney, Australia in 1893 and became a model for French airplanes for many years. A trophy was presented to Houdini for Australia's first airplane flight. Just a few years later, on July 17, 1913, Houdini's mother, Cecilia Weiss, died after suffering a stroke. When news of her death reached Houdini, who was performing in Copenhagen, he fainted. It took Houdini several days to make it back to New York. The family delayed burial against Jewish custom just so Houdini could have one last look at his mother. Every day for a year he visited his mother's grave and every night at 15 minutes past midnight, the instant of her death. He lay flat on the ground, his arms embracing her grave, his face pressed close to the earth. There, he talked to her, begging her to let him know her last words. The great Harry Houdini, magician, handcuff king, jailbreaker, escape artist, daredevil, was painfully bound by his mother's death. When we come back, can Houdini escape the grasp of depression? This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. And for all that we do, by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Stories about everything. And in that last segment, we heard about how Houdini was the 25th person to fly in the air just years after the Wright brothers did. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and listen to David McCullough for the hour talking about the Wright brothers. His terrific new book, The Wright Brothers, are not so new, but New if you haven't read it, and you can hear the whole story at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Just type the Wright Brothers in there, and you'll hear David McCullough walk us through, and all of us through, one of the great stories of American life. And now we return and continue with the epic tale of the great Harry Houdini, where he was suffering greatly over the loss of his mother. After the death of his mother, the great Houdini was in the throes of depression. The story from here usually goes that after his mother died, Houdini attended seances in the hopes to communicate with her, and that all he found was fraud. He then set out to expose fraudulent mediums and launched into a new wave of his career as an anti-spiritualism crusader and debunker. It's a good story. The trouble is, it's just not true. The notion that his mother's death led directly to his anti-spiritualism crusade has grown to become one of the most popular Houdini myths. It would be ten years before Houdini unmasked his first medium. The true genesis of Houdini's anti-spiritualism crusade is rooted in his friendship with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author and creator of Sherlock Holmes. After World War I, spiritualism became extremely popular. Arthur Conan Doyle, who lost his son in the war, became a passionate champion of the movement. Serpents and spiders, tail of a rat, call in the spirits. Wherever they're at. Although Houdini insisted that spiritualist mediums employed trickery, Doyle became convinced that Houdini himself possessed supernatural powers. Here's the voice of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle from a recording in 1930 where he describes his view of spiritualism. In 1887, some curious psychic experiences came my way. And especially, I was impressed by the fact of telepathy which I proved for myself by experiments with a friend. The question then arose, if two incarnate minds could communicate, is it possible for a discarnate one to communicate with one that is still in the body? For more than 20 years I examined the evidence and came finally to the conclusion beyond all doubt that such communication was possible. I could give hundreds of illustrations to prove my point. But I can only refer you to the literature of the subject. The full importance of the matter did not come home to me until the war, when all the world was asking, where are our dead boys? And getting such unsatisfactory answers, both from the churches and from science. Then it was that my wife and I felt that our knowledge on the subject was of enormous importance, and that we could answer this universal question. While on the beach one day, Sir Arthur informed Houdini that his wife, Lady Doyle, had developed the power of mediumship herself and was sensing that Houdini's deceased mother wished to communicate with him. Privately, Bess Houdini had warned her husband that Lady Doyle had been peppering her with questions about his relationship with his mother just the day before. Nevertheless, Houdini agreed to the seance. Strap on a table. It's time to respond. Send us a message from somewhere beyond. 
During the seance, Houdini's mother appeared to return through automatic writing, a process in which Lady Doyle transcribed words from beyond onto a notepad. Immediately, Houdini could see problems. The pages were in English, a language his mother did not speak. She also made the sign of a cross on the top of the first page. Not something you would expect from the wife of a rabbi. But Houdini concealed his doubts and thanked the Doyles for their seance. Sir Arthur told the press that Houdini had been converted to the religion of spiritualism. Harry Houdini countered publicly that he had not been converted and that he was more skeptical than ever. This raised the question of whether Houdini thought the Doyles were frauds. The public exchange put a strain on the friendship, and Harry Houdini began to incorporate the debunking of spiritualism into his stage performances. There are those who would have you believe that they can foresee the future. Heal wounds. Talk to the dead. Talk to the dead. I've met hundreds of them. Table tappers, trumpet blowers, ectoplasmic saints. They'd rather we exercise our fantasies than our brains. I've invested years reaching across those psychic gulfs. You'd think I wouldn't if I could. I ache to believe. I wanted to talk to one single soul. How hard could that be? She died with one thought on her lips. For me. There are 20,000 medians practicing today, and none have spoken those words. And I warrant for my $10,000 reward, two-thirds of them have tried. If spirits are genuine, you think they'd warn us? There'd have been no passengers on the Titanic. There'd have been no deaths in the San Francisco quake. If ghosts, if ghosts can inhabit any self-proclaimed Madame Zaza, why not the lower forms of life? Why doesn't your, your poodle whisper warnings about the next train wreck? Or your, your Persian for warn of murder? Why? Animals don't have bank accounts. Here again is magician Joshua Jay with his perspective on Houdini's quest to challenge spiritualism. So, you're Houdini. By this time, you've achieved more fame than probably was ever even thought possible for a magician. He's one of the most famous figures alive, but something's happened. He's getting older, right? He's famous for being a dashing, young immigrant magician, making these escapes with young assistants, showing off the physicality of his body, but now he's bordering 50 years old. He's not quite as quick on his feet, and he realizes that the last part of his career will not be as dynamic physically as the first part. So what do you do? Where do you go from here? It's the same question great actors and great singers ask when they achieve so much, but now have to reinvent themselves. Well, if you're Houdini, you go on a crusade against an emerging religion, spiritualism. And I call spiritualism a religion on purpose. It's looked at today as a cult or sort of a phase in history. But at that time period, people believed in spiritualism as a faith. And he was very close to his mother, as I've told you. When she died, he wanted more than anything, like all of us do when we lose somebody, to get in contact with her. And there was a particular incident in which he was told that he would, and he was told he had made contact with his mother. And it was a scam. He realized very quickly that the same techniques he was using to deceive the public, they were using to deceive people for real. And he went on a crusade against spiritualism. When we return, the infamous death of the great Harry Houdini 
plus the only known audio recording of his voice in existence. This is Our American Stories. continue with the closing segment on the life of the great Harry Houdini and now we hear from famous magicians of our time about the life of this epic entertainer but first we hear the voice of the escape master himself On October 29, 1914, the audio was recorded on an Edison wax cylinder and is now the only known vocal recording of Harry Houdini to exist. The recording captures Harry Houdini delivering an introduction to his Chinese water torture cell escape. The audio allows us to hear Houdini's measured cadence and careful enunciation. One of my assistants walked to the curtain 
ready to resin, demolishing the glass, allowing the water to flow out in order to save my life. Harry Houdini, October the 29th, 1914, Flatbush, New York. World-renowned street performer and magician David Blaine tells the story of a befriended librarian at an early age who introduced him to a book that would set the course for his highly successful career in magic. It was called The Secrets of Houdini. You know, at the age of five, when you see a man chained up sideways to the side of a building, a straitjacket looking really scary, you don't forget that. And I started looking through the book and I started seeing all these amazing things that he was doing. And what I liked about what he was doing is you could very easily tell from the pictures that he was doing things that were real. So it wasn't like an illusion or a magic trick, even though he employed that into what he did. But what the guy was doing was clearly real and physical and dangerous. And it was the things that I think are amazing to this day. Chris Angel is another highly successful and popular magician and illusionist who was directly influenced by the great Harry Houdini. He was more than a magician or an escape artist. He was a provocateur. He was somebody who was popular culture. He was, by all means, the biggest star of his era. And um, I think part of his success came because he understood what the public wanted and even more so understood how to create that interest. I always said that if you cut Houdini with a knife, blood wouldn't come out. Press wood. He was a master at that. And uh, that inspired me. Magician, illusionist, and comedian Penn Jillette is famous for his work as half of Penn & Teller. There's a fascinating thing about Houdini, uh, deeply fascinating, in that I can't think. Try to maybe sort of put Bob Dylan in this category. Uh, but it's very hard to think. You can maybe sort of try to try to sneak in Picasso, try to sneak in Miles Davis, but trying to find someone who in their career made a philosophical or moral change while they were famous. Um, someone who has come out and redefined themselves in a moral way. Houdini became hugely famous as an escape artist, saying to a nation of immigrants, a man born in Budapest, and then standing. I mean, there's a picture of Houdini in, in Times Square hanging upside down in a straitjacket with a whole sea of men in hats. The picture makes me cry every time. And then Houdini's publicity statement, <laughs> I defy the jails of the world to hold me. I mean, can you imagine a more heavy, more, I mean, t from a rabbi's son from Budapest. I mean, is there anything more uh, uh, purely American than that? He gets to be a superstar as an escape artist. He gets himself into dictionaries as an escape artist. We look back on the 20th century in 100 years and look at um, entertainment. The only two people in the running for being remembered in the 20th century are Elvis Presley and Houdini. And as time goes on, Houdini's winning. When Harry Houdini and his entourage arrived at the Garrick Theater in Detroit, Michigan on October 24th, 1926, he was running a fever. Two days earlier, Houdini had been resting in his dressing room prior to a show in Montreal when a college student named J. Gordon Whitehead approached him. It's difficult to determine exactly what happened from here as accounts from eyewitnesses are slightly conflicting. However, 
The general story seems to be that Whitehead asked Houdini if the claim that he could withstand any punch to the abdomen had any truth to it. Houdini assured him that it was true and gave him permission to see for himself. Whitehead immediately took several jabs at Houdini's midsection while the magician supposedly didn't have a chance to prepare for the blows from over-exuberant J. Gordon Whitehead. The punches inflicted more pain than Houdini anticipated, yet he insisted that the evening's scheduled performance must go on. And now, ladies and gentlemen, as you read in the newspapers this morning, Houdini has been challenged to liberate himself from a steel straitjacket. He began the performance with several vanishing acts, culminating with making a woman disappear and conjuring a flower shrub in her place. He made it through the first act, but his condition worsened and he was forced to finish the show. Houdini finally gave in and agreed to go to Grace Hospital in Detroit to have an emergency appendectomy. Doctors performed the surgery, but the damage was already done. Harry Houdini held on for about a week at Grace Hospital finally succumbed on October 31st, 1926. He was 52 years old. Which is where our story ends, as it began, on the night of October 31st, 1936, on the rooftop of the Nickenbacher Hotel in Hollywood, California, 10 years to the day after he died. The great Houdini made a pact with his wife, Bess, that he would make every attempt to communicate with her as a spirit from beyond the grave after he was dead. So, every year on Halloween, the widow of Harry Houdini held a seance for him the night of his departure for the next 10 years without ever making contact. In this, the 10th and final seance, gold invitations were sent to 300 guests, reporters, and Hollywood elite. Lights as far away as New York were dimmed, one minute of silence was observed before the ceremony reached its climax at the final plea for the great Harry Houdini to reveal himself to the world. Oh, thou disembodied spirits, those of you that have grown old in the mysterious laws of spirit land, we greet thee. It is the spirit of Houdini we wish to contact. Houdini, are you here? Are you here, Houdini? Please manifest yourself in any way possible. Take from this earnest gathering any strength that may be necessary for you to use. Take any vital thing from us that you may need to enable you to carry out your promise of years ago. We have waited, Houdini, oh so long. Never have you been able to present the evidence you promised. And now, this is a night of night. The world is listening. Harry, your world, your audience, we are crying to high heaven, to the powers that be. We are crying in one mighty magnetic voice from every corner of the earth, and the hearts and minds of the twos are centered here tonight. We want the evidence, the truth, in the name of humanity and love. If there is communication from the great beyond, come through with the evidence. The evidence was in. The great Houdini had made his greatest escape. From the shackles that bound him to this world, to that inevitable escape that we all make, the story of the great Harry Houdini will live on forever. This is Our American Story.
And great job as always, and that's Jesse Edwards. And my goodness, when he hits it good, he hits it out of the park. And just listening to that, what a stunt Harry Houdini created for all those liars and all those false prophets. He exposed them, even in his grave, setting them up for the kill. A master at the big event. And by the way, what an American story. Born in 1894, Budapest, Hungary, son of a rabbi, a Jew, an outsider's outsiders in his new country. And he becomes the biggest star there ever was. And again, it was pointed out early, he didn't play someone else like the Valentinos of the early movie world. Houdini played himself to the end. Provocateur. And he understood, as one person said, what the public wanted. The life of Harry Houdini. What a story here on Our American Stories. And to listen to all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.